Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study through this little book of Jude. And as I've been saying week after week, Jude is dealing with the subject of apostasy. He's warning the church to battle for the truth in a world of apostasy and spiritual defection. That's our world, people. You know, this week in the United States of America, we've had a visit by one of the world's leading apostates, the Pope. I know, I know, not very politically correct to say things like that. You're supposed to only say nice things. You're not really supposed to speak the truth. But I want you to notice what Yeshua had to say to the religious leaders of His day. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe is a pronunciation of judgment. Hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside you appear beautiful, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Now, how'd you like that kind of pronunciation brought against you? He wasn't afraid to tell it like it is. Why are we so worried about being politically correct today, making sure we don't hurt anybody's feelings? Jude says these apostates deny our only Master and Lord Yeshua the Christ. And I want to say to you that that's exactly what the Pope does. He denies Him by teaching that His death on the cross is not sufficient to save man. Catholic doctrine states faith in Christ alone is not sufficient to save you. You must add to it your good works. Let me ask you, can a person be saved apart from believing the Gospel? Can a person be a brother in Christ who does not believe the Gospel? What should our position be on a person who preaches a false Gospel? Should we praise him? And well, He's a good guy. Smiles nice. Likes little children. Is Roman Catholicism simply another Christian denomination? When the world thinks of Christian, that's what they think of Catholicism. Please listen carefully to this doctrinal statement of the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church. If anyone saith that man is truly absolved from his sins and justified because that he assuredly believed himself absolved and justified, or that no one is truly justified but he who believes himself justified, And that by this faith alone, absolution and justification are affected. In other words, if you believe you're saved by faith alone, let him be devoted to destruction. That's anathema. That's the Catholic Church. You believe you're saved by faith, you're devoted to destruction. Because you've got to count on the Catholic Church. This is a quote from the Council of Trent, Canon 14. Now, according to this, every Christian in the world stands under the official, never-changing curse of the Roman Catholic Church. We are anathema. Now, according to the Catholic Church, those who believe in justification by faith alone are under a curse. They're anathema. Now, Council 9 of the Council of Trent states this, If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, it's kind of what we say, is such why... <clears throat> is such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtaining of the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, 
Let him be anathema. Now, again, you might be thinking, well, the Council of Trent met a long time ago. I mean, hasn't Rome changed or modified its position since? No, it has not. The Vatican II documents, as well as the new catechism of the Catholic Church, reinvoke the theological position of the Council of Trent, condemning the gospel of justification by an imputed righteousness. Now, Pope Francis, as a leader of the Roman Catholic Church, remains committed to a false gospel and insists upon good works as a necessary condition for justification. He's the head of a false church that is opposed to the true gospel of salvation by grace alone. So I say he's apostate and people cringe. It's like, he's a nice guy. He's a nice apostate. Okay, I'm not arguing that. He's nice. But he's an apostate. Francis holds that Mary is a mediatrix and co-redemptrix with her son Jesus. That scripture is insufficient and must have the tradition of the Catholic Church added to it. This book alone is not enough, people. It's not enough. Now, there's been stuff going around the internet that the Pope said the Bible and the Quran are on the same level. The Pope didn't say that. That's bogus, okay? If you want to know what he says, go to the Vatican website. You find out what the Pope actually says. He says enough stuff. You don't need to make stuff up, okay? I mean, he really condemns himself enough, according to Scripture, all right? He says that every Christian who dies has to go to purgatory. That Christ is sacrificed anew each time the Mass is celebrated. And on and on it goes. But I don't think any false teaching is as scandalous or as damning as his denial of justification by grace through faith alone. Francis said, poverty is at the very center of the Gospel. Did you know that? He said, if we remove poverty from the gospel, no one would be able to understand anything about the message of Jesus. Now, the poverty Francis is talking about is not spiritual poverty, but economic poverty. But does material poverty have anything to do with the gospel of Christ? See, to Francis, what he is saying is helping the poor, giving to the poor is the gospel. That's how you become a Christian. Pope Francis gave a sermon on June 25th, 2014 in Rome. He said, Dear friends, let us ask the Lord through the intercession of the Virgin Mary, Mother of the Church, for the grace to never fall into the temptation of thinking we can make it without others. By that he means the Roman Catholic Church. That we can get along without the Church. That we can save ourselves alone. By that he means, again, without, apart from the Church of being Christians of the laboratory. On the contrary, you cannot love God without loving your brothers. You cannot love God outside of the church. You cannot be in communion with God without being so in the church. Now, that, again, he's talking about the Roman, not talking about the universal church of God, the body of Christ. He's talking about the Roman Catholic church. If you are not connected to the church, you can't have communion with God. You can't be saved. You can't be in fellowship. Because, people, the church teaches you need the traditions of the church. You know, while Pope Francis washes the feet of prisoners and he kisses the face of the deformed, he does so out of and toward this false gospel that leads not towards Christ, but towards man. 
good deeds done to promote a false gospel, they're the worst deeds of all. As people look at him, he's such a wonderful, nice, humble, generous man. Yeah, but he's wrong. Very wrong. I, you know, my wife and I watch the news and we're sitting there shaking our head thinking, this is a country who just basically despises God, wants God out of it. But this guy shows up who's supposed to be the vicar of Christ. He's supposed to be Christ's representative on earth. And the country goes mad like, oh, look it. They're all lying the streets and bowing down. And, and he blessed me. And I'm like, really? Some lady took a trip with a single mother with her four kids to come here to be blessed by the Pope. Really? What does that do for you? <clears throat> Very confusing, people. But if, you know, like I said, if you stand up and say he's an apostate, people are going to have a fit because he's just such a nice guy. Not denying that. But he's supposed to be the leader of the church. Christ's representative on earth. He's not doing a very good job. Well, in our text this morning, Jude writes this. It was also about these men, Pope Francis, that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of the ungodly deeds they have done in an ungodly way and all their harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Jude reminds his readers in verse 14 and 15 that Enoch prophesied that judgment would come on the apostates. This quote is taken directly from the book of Enoch. 1 Enoch 1.9 It says, And behold, he cometh with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and destroy all the ungodly, and to convict all flesh and all the works of their ungodliness which they have ungodly committed, and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, the Bible does not record this prophecy of Enoch in any other place other than Jude. But the fact that Jude was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this down indicates this is the truth. All right? Jude's quoting this. This is, this is Bible, what Jude says. All right? And he's quoting Enoch. This is the oldest prophecy uttered by a prophet of Christ's coming judgment. Prophesied by Enoch before the flood of Noah's day. He says it was about these men. And again, this goes back to the hidden reefs, those clouds without water. It goes all the way back to verse 4. Those men who have crept in among us that look so good. The Word also tells us that Jude considers Enoch to be similar to him and that Enoch warned against apostates just as he is doing. And he says Enoch did this. Enoch's the one who warned us. Now, <clears throat> you know that Enoch was a contemporary of Adam for a little over 300 years? 300 years. Can you imagine their conversations? Think they got together? Adam could have told Enoch about the Garden of Eden. About the fellowship, about walking with God in the garden. About the divine council member, the Nakash, who tricked them and got them kicked out of the family and out of the garden. And about the, the cost of their sin. They had 300 years to talk together about spiritual things. Maybe Adam's stories about how he walked with God drove Enoch to want to know God better and walk with Him and commune with Him. Well, Adam was dead and Enoch was gone before Noah showed up. The only other man who had said that have walked with God. As we have seen in our previous studies, the Scripture tells us that Enoch walked with God. Now, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of Genesis 5.24, used the verb euaristheo, 
and translates it as Enoch was well-pleasing to God. This is the same word the writer of Hebrews uses in 11.5 when he says that Enoch was pleasing to God. You know, last week I said that Enoch is the only man apart from the Lord Yeshua who is written in the Scripture that he pleased God. Well, if you take into account the Septuagint, you'd have to add no to that. Because it also says the same word, Eoeristheo, is used of Noah. He pleased God. The Hebrew says he walked with God. The Greek says he was pleasing to God. And it says, and God took him. The writer of Hebrews and the Septuagint both use the word methathithemi here, which means God took him. It means to put in another place. I took Enoch, he walked with God one day, he walked right into eternity, right into the presence of the Lord and his fellowship. Now, I, I've gotten some emails and feedback from people saying, oh, Enoch didn't go to heaven, he didn't go. Hebrews 11, later in Hebrews 11, says these all died in faith. But Hebrews 11.5 says Enoch didn't die. So, you know, there's a lot of controversy over that. Listen, you know, he was having such a good time of fellowship with God that God just took him and sent him away somewhere else. I, I, it doesn't make sense to me. I think he walked straight into eternity, into the fellowship of God, and just kept on enjoying that beautiful fellowship. Well, Jude says it was the seventh generation from Adam. Now, this clarifies for us exactly what Enoch he's talking about, because we don't want to confuse Enoch with the Enoch of Genesis 4-7, who was the son of Cain. Totally different Enoch. All right, don't get him confused. Now, I think we all know the number seven is a significant number, especially to the Jews. There's a sacredness about the number seven, a completeness, a totality. But I think when Jude introduces Enoch as the seventh from Adam, this is not merely a number attained by adding up the lineage from the genealogy of Genesis. The phrase seventh from Adam is a common identifier for Enoch found outside the Tanakh in Second Temple literature. Jubilee 739, the Talmudic writings have it. Uh, We also find in Enoch, look at Enoch 60, verse 8. This is an interesting text. But the male is named Behemoth, who occupied with his breast a waste wilderness named Dudain on the east of the garden where the elect and the righteous dwell, where my grandfather was taken up, the seventh from Adam. This is supposed to be Noah talking here. And he's talking about his grandfather, Enoch, being taken up. Now, notice the very end. The first man whom the Lord of Spirits created. Hmm, that's interesting. According to Enoch, Adam was the first man that God created. Now, there's some controversy about that. People say, ah, oh, he couldn't have been the first. Well, Enoch thought he was. <clears throat> Doesn't mean Enoch's right, but it's just interesting. That's the literature of the day. That's how they saw it. All right, our text tells us that Enoch prophesied. He was a prophet of Yahweh. Now, this prophecy of Enoch is the first prophecy recorded in Scripture given by a man. We have a prophecy earlier than this, the one in Genesis 3, that talks about the seed of the woman, bruised the serpent's head. That wasn't given by a man. Yahweh gave that prophecy. But this is the first prophecy given through a man, and it concerns the coming of the Lord in judgment. It's a second coming prophecy. And it just so happens that the last prophecy recorded in Scripture There's also a second coming prophecy in Revelation 22.20. I am coming quickly. So the very first prophecy is given by a man that is given by a man is about the second coming. The last prophecy given by man through man is about Christ's coming in judgment. Now, the word prophesied here is first in the Greek sentence. That emphasizes the importance of the prophetic message. The Greek text reads like this. 
prophesied moreover as to these seventh from Adam, Enoch, saying, Behold, has come amidst holy many thousands of his. Now you know why they translate it. <laughs> well, if Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that Enoch said that, then guess what? Enoch said that. All right? I think we can all agree on that. All right? That's the inspired text. Enoch said that. Now, Douglas Moo, in his commentary on Jude, writes this. To be sure, Jude claims that Enoch prophesied. All right? But, this word need not mean wrote an inspired prophetic book. It could well mean simply uttered this instance of prophecy. Well, he's right. I mean, it could just mean that. Saying Enoch prophesied doesn't necessarily mean he wrote a book. Notice that Jude doesn't say, the book of Enoch says. But, Enoch prophesied. Now, often in scriptures, the writers will say that a book or something says such and such. For example, in Numbers 21.14. Therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of Yahweh. So here he says it said something, and he says it said in the book. And in uh, Joshua 10.13, it says the sun stood still, the moon stopped, until the nation avenged themselves on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? So here we have it written in a book. So Moses quotes from the book of Wars of Yahweh, and Joshua quotes from the book of Jasher. But Jude doesn't do that. He doesn't say, I'm right, this is written, or uh, it says this. He says, Enoch prophesied. So, some say that this means... He's not quoting from the book of Enoch, but he's quoting from Enoch himself. Well, my question would be, how does Jude know this prophecy? Did God tell him? Possibly, right? He's under inspiration. God could have let him know this. Maybe he's just quoting from an oral tradition. But I would tend to think that since much of Jude's material comes from the book of Enoch, that Jude got this prophecy from the book of Enoch. By saying Enoch prophesied, maybe, just maybe, Jude is saying Enoch was the author of Enoch. Maybe. Now, I'm not saying that Enoch wrote this down, but maybe others took the oral tradition of what Enoch passed down and they wrote it down at some point in time. You know, Noah's family must have known this quote, right? Because it got to the other side of the flood, right? So they must have known it. Survived somehow. Some believe First Enoch contains the actual words of Enoch and that it was handed down through the ages. Possibly. An oral tradition. Now, there's no way to prove that. But there's no way to disprove that. Okay? Handed down at some point, they wrote it down. There's no real way to know for sure. Tertullian, who was at the, wrote at the close of the first century, the beginning of the second century, while admitting that the Scripture of Enoch, that's what Tertullian calls it, the Scripture of Enoch is not received by some because it's not included in the Hebrew canon, speaks of the author as the most ancient prophet Enoch and of the book as the divinely inspired autograph of that immortal patriarch, preserved by Noah in the ark or miraculously reproduced by him through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he said either Noah kept that or he reproduced it on the other side. Just pass on the oral tradition. Many argue that just because Jude uses this quote from Enoch, that doesn't mean that he's endorsing the whole book as true. They'll admit, okay, that's in the book. Doesn't mean the rest of the book has anything good to say. All right, he's just using one verse. And there are cases where apostles quote a saying 
as a singular cultural reference without connecting it to the rest of the source. doesn't mean they agree with the whole source. For example, Paul quotes the Stoic Aratus on Mars Hill this way. He says, for we also are his children. Now, that's a quote. Notice, you see the quotation marks in the scripture. Paul's not saying that. He's quoting Aratus. Paul also quotes Epimendes of Crete in uh, Titus 1.12. He says, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's a prophecy. Nice prophecy, right? A lot of good things to say about Cretans. This next one may surprise you. This uh, Paul here quotes <laughs> Meander when he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Did you notice that's in quotes? Did you ever notice that when you read your Bible? Paul's not saying that. He's quoting. Alright? He's quoting someone. He's quoting from the Greek poet Meander. Now, is what Paul quoted from Meander, is that biblical? I mean, is he saying this is right or is he just saying this guy says it? You think that's a biblical quote? Think that lines up with Scripture? Huh? It is. Well, yeah, it is now. But also, you're familiar with the Proverbs? Man, I, this is a this is a verse I used to drill into my kids all the time because I think this is significant. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. That's so blatantly obvious, people. Okay, a companion of fools is going to suffer harm. So walk with wise men. You know, people say, oh, they're, they're just my friends. doesn't matter how messed up they are. No, it really matters. You're going to be affected by your friends. Definitely going to be affected by them. All right. So the author, author of Scripture often quotes others without endorsing everything they said. Paul quotes Aratus, Epimendes, Meander. But the difference here is that Jude doesn't merely quote a verse from the book he follows the content patterns of First Enoch along with the allusions, the echoes of his phrases, and the language throughout the epistle. I mean, it's like everything he's saying is coming from Enoch, although this is the direct quote. So it's not like he just pulls one thing out. That would be a different situation. Jude also echoes First Enoch in its primary apocalyptic theme of the punishment of the ungodly. That's what Enoch's talking about. That's what Jude's talking about. Both texts are addressing the evil of their day and unveiling the, the fulfillment of past prophetic proclamations about it. They both appeal to ancient examples of judgment as the promise of judgment upon the present ungodly. In verse 6, Jude says that the angels who abandon their proper abode. Well, who are these angels? What's their proper abode? What's this violation? Well, Jude's reference is directly dependent on First Enoch Chapter 6 through 19, which is the earliest extent account of the fall of the watchers. And he shows himself closely familiar with those chapters. And then Jude says these angelic beings who rebelled against God were put in eternal bonds for the judgment of the great day in verse 6. Enoch says they were bound under the rocks of the ground until the day of their judgment. First Enoch 10 12. Jude relies heavily on first Enoch. He must have trusted its content. Very heavily. Now, the Jewish historian, Josephus, reports a detail concerning how he thinks biblical authors like Jude came to know about historical events before and immediately after the flood. Josephus reports that Enoch's son, Methuselah, was an ancient historian. And during his exceptionally long lifespan, 
the longest person that ever lived, right? 969 years, that's a long life. Uh, Methuselah wrote his history of the world since Adam in two large stone obelisks. These obelisks stood on the earth somewhere in Arabia during the years leading up to the flood. So he says he wrote these things all down, and on the other side of the flood, they got these things, and they translated them, and, and that's how a lot of this stuff, that's how they knew a lot of this stuff. Is that true? I don't know. It's interesting, though. I think it's significant, though, that Jude doesn't call Enoch Scripture. He doesn't use graphe. He doesn't introduce it with a quote like, it is written, like others do. That's pretty much a typical way to introduce Scripture. Uh, Mark 7, 6, and he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. He's talking about a prophecy of Isaiah, and then he says, as it's written, and he quotes the prophecy. Well, Jude just says, Enoch prophesied. He was a prophet. Many of Yahweh's prophets wrote books, or what they said is recorded in Scripture. Maybe, <clears throat> just maybe, Enoch's prophecy is written down. And we find it in the book of First Enoch. Could be. I mean, we can argue whether we think First Enoch should be in the canon, or, you know, and that argument can go on forever. Because some people say it should be Scripture, some people say it shouldn't be Scripture. My position is it's not because he doesn't say it's Scripture. It was never part of the canon. But I do think, it is very valuable. And I think that's one thing we should be able to agree on is the importance of the book of Enoch and understanding the thinking of the second temple period. You want to know what those people believe? Look what Enoch said. Because they really relied on this. It was a very, very familiar text. R.H. Charles, one of the earliest experts on the Pseudepigrapha and Enoch, points out four titles appear for the first time in First Enoch's book of parables applied to a personal messiah. This is before the New Testament. He says, Christ, or the Anointed One, applies to priest or royalty in the Tanakh, but is transformed into the ideal Messianic King first in First Enoch. Before the New Testament was written, the Righteous One and the Elect One likewise first appear with Messianic designations in First Enoch. Even the Son of Man was transformed in His identity from Old Covenant King to New Testament Judge by way of First Enoch. So a lot of these things that we understand before the New Testament was even written were developed in Enoch, First Enoch. Nicholsburg lays out evidence that the influence of First Enoch on the New Testament appropriation, uh, appropriation of the Son of Man Christology through Daniel 7 is clearly a source for Yeshua's self-designation as the Son of Man. Nicholsburg argues that it cannot be explained it cannot explain the totality of the Son of Man doctrine as portrayed in the Gospels, a doctrine that reveals development in the intertestamental period through First Enoch in particular. So Jude says that Enoch prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came. Now he used behold here to kind of get your attention. He's talking here about the second coming of Christ. You know, in the New Testament, there's over 300 references to the second coming of the Lord, Yeshua. And this is one of them. Over 300. First Enoch says, And behold, he cometh. You see a difference there between Jude and Enoch? Jude says, The Lord came. This is an aorist active indicative, not will come, not a future tense, but came past tense. So the verb came is aorist tense, but it's in the context it describes an event that is yet future. This event, Christ's coming in judgment, 
in Jude. That's what he's talking. He's talking about the coming of Christ, but he says he came. Because it, the vet is so certain that Jude describes it in the past tense. This use of the aorist tense is referred to as a proleptic aorist. Proleptic, you're talking about something that hasn't happened yet as if it already did. We see this a lot in the Gospels. Daniel B. Wallace says, The aorist indicative can be used to describe an event that is not yet passed, although it were already completed. This usage is not at all common, though several exegetical significant texts involve possible proleptic aorists. S.L. Johnson writes, They were described in the past tense because it was so certain that they would come to pass, and so that use of a tense of completed action, a perfect tense, to describe events of the future, clearly from the context, they were future. So he describes this as, you know, it's already happened. What's called the Hebrew grammar as the prophetic perfect. Now that is what we have here. He's talking about in the book of Jude here. That's what we have. He says, the Lord came. Now the Lord here, obviously, is the Lord Yeshua the Christ, returning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who he visions as the Lord, the Lord who came. And he says he, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. This is a coming in judgment, and Christ is not coming alone. Literally, it says, in or among holy myriads. Now, the preposition with or among presents the coming of the Lord as surrounded by this vast host of attendants. Who is He coming with? Who are these holy ones? Well, one commentator writes, the word saints here refers to those who have been saved, those who have accepted Jesus Christ. Well, the problem with that is the word in the Greek here is hagios, which refers to holy ones. Hagios just means holy. And it's no ones there, it's just he comes with his holy. This hagios. It's a reference to angels, not believers. Christ's second coming was accompanied by angels. Look at Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. It comes with his angels. That idea is repeated over and over in the passages dealing with the second coming. Alright? He's coming with His angels. This is His counsel. This is His myriad, the armies of heaven. Now Jude goes on, quoting First Enoch to say, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. I think Jude thinks these people are ungodly. What do you think? The word execute is a translation of the Greek word poieo. It means to accomplish, to fulfill, to perform, to carry out. The word judgment here actually refers to the act of judging, the administration of justice, and the phrase upon all refers to all apostates. He's not going to judge everybody. He's judging the apostate. That's what he's talking about. The Greek word here translated convict, elenko, means to convict or expose. And then the word ungodly, Eusebia is used four times in this verse, and it means wicked, sinful, and godless. Of all their ungodly deeds, more literally their works of ungodliness. The word harsh here is from skleros, which we get our word scoliosis. It literally means hard, stiff, dried up, dry, severe. Ungodly sinners is literally placed last in the Greek sentence for emphasis. Literally reads, sinners, ungodly persons. They're not just sinners, they're ungodly ones. Ungodly is the key word in this passage. It describes their basic sinful attitude of refusing to have a proper reverence for God. They're not respecting Him. They're not reverencing God. They are ungodly. Now, Jude gives us this reference to the coming of Christ and just about every reference in the New Testament to the Lord's coming 
has a time stamp on it. Just about every one. But there's no time indicator here in Jude unless we take the proleptic heiress as a sign it would be soon. But we can't really do that. We don't know that's exactly what it means. When did Enoch think the Lord was going to return? I mean, did he have a clue? Did he just, did he know? Is there any time indicators in Enoch? Well, let's look at the whole first chapter of first Enoch. It's kind of an interesting chapter. He said, the words of the blessing of Enoch, wherewith he blessed the elect and righteous, who will be living in the day of tribulation. What tribulation is that? Well, I think, you know, he's referring to a specific tribulation because we know that the Lord referred to a specific tribulation. He says, what tribulation? He says, watch this. When all the wicked and godless are to be removed. Oh, okay, I think we know what he's talking about then. That kind of narrows it down, doesn't it? And he took up his parable and said, Enoch, a righteous man whose eyes were opened by God, saw the vision of the Holy One in heavens, which the angels showed me, and from them I heard everything, and from them I understood as I saw, but not for this generation. Who's this generation? The one he's writing to, the one he's speaking to, the generation he's living in. Not to this generation. Hang on to that. We'll get to that back, come back to that, all right? But for a remote one, which is to come. Concerning the elect, I said, and took up my parable concerning them. The Holy Great One will come forth from his dwelling, and the eternal God will, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) the eternal God will tread upon the earth. All right, here comes God. He's going to trample down the earth, even on Mount Sinai, and appear from his camp and appear in the strength of his might from the heaven of heavens. And all shall be smitten with fear and the watchers shall quake and great fear and trembling shall seize them under the ends of the earth and the high mountains shall be shaken. Here we got the whole earth. The mountains are shaking. The high hills shall be made low. They shall melt like wax before the flames. Does this sound familiar? And the earth shall be wholly rent asunder, and all that is upon the earth shall perish. There shall be a great judgment upon all men. But stop, let's walk. Okay, you've got this whole thing. The earth's shaking. The cosmos is coming apart, basically. Verse 8 says, But with the righteous he'll make peace, and will protect the elect. And mercy shall be upon them, and they shall all belong to God, and they shall prosper, and they shall be blessed, and He will help them, and light shall appear unto them, and He will make peace with them, and behold, He cometh with ten thousand to execute judgment. Alright, we read all that, sorry, right? It sounds a lot to me like Matthew here, Matthew 24, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, we heard the word tribulation in there, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. That Son of Man, that's a real good designation. Used a lot in Enoch. Then the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet sound. And they will gather together His elect. Going to save the elect before the judgment falls. From the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So it sounds very much like what Enoch talks about. The Lord talks about the same thing. And the Lord tells us, if Enoch's not specific as to when it's happening, not it's his generation, it's for a remote generation, it's for the time of the tribulation, it's the time of all the wicked will be judged. But the Lord tells us exactly when it's going to happen. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, this generation. Now Enoch said it wasn't for his generation, 
But Yeshua said it is for my generation. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All these things, if you read the passage, is everything the second coming of Christ. The gospel preached to all the ends of the earth. The judgment, it's all coming, the resurrection in that generation. You know, this verse is devastating to a futuristic eschatology if you let it say what it says. So let's look at it just to make sure we understand what it's saying. Generation, in our text, comes from the Greek word Ganea. Alright? In Thayer's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, they say Ganea means the whole multitude of men living at the same time. That generation. Now look at people. He says this generation. The near demonstrative. The one I'm talking, not that generation, not some future, but this one. The people living at that time. William Art and William Gingrich in a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament define Ganea as basically the sum total of those born at the same time, expanded to include all those living at a given time, contemporaries. Now, if you look at the way Yeshua used the word generation, I think it will be abundantly clear that it always refers to contemporaries, the Jewish people of His day, the very people He was talking to. In etymology and usage, generation means those born at the same time, contemporaries. In biblical thought, a generation is 40 years. Alright? Now, some have tried to twist the etymology of the word generation to make it mean race. And try to make it sound like all these things will happen before the Jewish race passes away. Okay? By doing this, they think they can expand the time of the second coming for thousands of years. There's no biblical or linguistic justification for such a position. Generation does not mean race. Now, here's what's interesting. C.I. Schofield, in his Bible, in his reference to Matthew 24, in the original Schofield, they fixed this later, in the original Schofield, Matthew 24, 34, he recognized this and actually switched the definition of the word from that of Ganea to Genos. Genos means race. He switched the word to an entirely different word because it didn't fit what he wanted. But then they realized the dishonesty of this later and they corrected it in the Schofield Bible. What Yeshua meant by all these things happening in that generation included the parousia, the judgment. It all happened while some folks to whom he preached were still alive. Just as he said they would be in Matthew 16. Some of you will not taste death till you see the Son of Man coming in the kingdom with his angels to reward every man. You're going to see this happen. People, Christ lived, was born and lived in the last days, according to Hebrews 1. It was the last days of the Old Covenant. It ended in AD 70 with the destruction of the Jewish temple. People, if we understand this, we will understand that we are not living in the last days today. We are not living in the end times today. I am so sick of everything in the world that happens. It's a sign of the times. People, read your Bible. If we understand this, we can save ourselves so much anxiety. We gotta listen to this constant drone of the prophecy preachers who continue to cry, the end is near! The end is near! Everything that happens! You know this guy? 
Jonathan Kahn, end times prophet to him. Well, America got, we got our own prophet. How cool is that? This past Wednesday was September 23rd, which was the Day of Atonement. Okay? Well, Jonathan Kahn said it was to be the last day of Shemitah. But actually, he said the 15th was the last day of Shemitah. He says, I'm being precise. This is, this is not, you know, expandable. This is exact. It's on the 15th. Didn't happen on the 15th. He goes, you know, I think it's the 23rd. He expanded to the 23rd. Supposed to be the last day. America was supposed to have a financial collapse. Unprecedented financial collapse on that day. Thousands upon thousands of Christians believe Khan's false prophecy. Businesses got sucked into this. Financial institutions were making decisions based on this. And the day came and nothing happened. So he moved it back a little bit. Nothing happened. Khan is a false prophet. He is an apostate. He's a cloud without water. He's a hidden wreath who can bring damage to a lot of people because he tries. You, if you read the book, the Shemitah, it sounds like, boy, he's got all these things that line up so good. It sounds so beautiful. Here's, here's the real interesting thing. Khan recently got confronted by one of his supporters because he found out, his supporter found out that the calendar, the Hebrew calendar that Khan used, was rejected by all Jews. They don't believe this calendar. This calendar is whacked out. None of them accept it. Well, Khan took that unaccepted calendar and then he manipulated that calendar. The reason he got confronted was because the people saw, hey, according to this calendar you're using, Yeshua is not the Messiah. He couldn't have been the Messiah according to this calendar, the time period you have. And so Khan came out and admitted, okay, I made a mistake. I used the wrong calendar. He goes, and I also changed it to, he manipulated that calendar. That calendar no one even accepts. He manipulated that one. But then when he found out it made Christ not the Messiah, he said, I got to reject that. Okay, I just made it up, folks, basically is what he said. Do you think it's going to hurt this guy's reputation? No, he'll write another book. He'll find something else to write about. He'll write another book and Christians will go buy it because we... Ah, oh, don't get me started how ignorant Christians are, alright? Khan made it all up. And people read it and it looks so good. Looks so good. The only problem is, you know, he's taking the law from the old covenant and applying it to America. All you have to know is, America's not under the old covenant. We're not under Jewish law, never have been, never will be. So you could just scrap the book from the very beginning once you understand that little bit. Alright? False prophet. End times. Yeah, it's all coming. You know, this is supposed to happen this month. Well, guess what? Don't give up yet. Because tomorrow is the final blood moon. Okay? Tomorrow, September 28th, the final blood moon. Now, Hagee started this series, The Coming Four Blood Moons, when he started this years ago. He started by reading Joel 2. In Acts 2, and he says, these four blood moons that run from April 15, 2014 to September 28, 2015, are what Joel and Peter was talking about. Well, first of all, Peter's talking about what Joel was talking about and said it was happening at that time, okay? I mean, Hagee didn't figure that out, you know? He's not the sharpest tool in the shed, okay? Because Peter said, this is that what was spoken by the prophet Joel. He just takes both the prophecies and says, see this coming in the future. No, Peter said, this is it. How do you miss that? 
He said, these blood moons, it's going to be a world-shaking event. He says, something big is about to happen. Well, tomorrow is the last blood moon. So then what? Then what? Well, as I said back on August 4th, 2013, you can go look at the video, listen to the auto, read it. When these four blood moons come and go, I said, Hagee will change his view, set some new dates, and keep right on writing and preaching, and people will keep right on following him. How many times does it have to happen, people? Stan gave me a book this morning. If you want, any of you want to read it, you're welcome to. It's ten reasons why Jesus is coming soon. And as Christians' leaders share their insight, Charles Swindoll, Billy Graham, uh, Dwight Pentecost, John Walford, Tim LaHaye, David Jeremiah, Charles Ryrie, Don and Alan, Joseph Stonewall. I don't know who some of these guys are, but here's their insights. Okay, this is written in 98, coming soon. Don't know what their version of soon is, but if you want to read this, you don't mind if I give it away, do you? <laughs> want a book you, you, a book you might want to hang on to, all right? He's just going to keep on preaching to his undiscerning crowd, and they're just going to keep right going. And you know, and if you get on the internet, you read about all this stuff with the Pope now, Pope being here in America, it's a sign of the end. Oh my word, these prophecy pundits in there, you know, they got their websites and they've got the Pope on there. This is a sign of the end. How many signs are there? That don't be, that aren't fulfilled. Here's the problem, people. Most believers believe that God will fulfill His promises made in the book of Revelation. Right? They believe that. God said this, He's gonna do it. Here's the problem. They don't believe that He will fulfill them in the time that He said He would. Right? Revelation 1-1, the revelation of Yeshua. This is the best place, people. You want to talk to somebody about end times, this is where you start, okay? Start with the book of Revelation. Everybody knows the book of Revelation. First question is, who is this written to? Me, they'll say. Really? Where's your name in here? It says in here it's written to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and he lists the seven churches, real churches that existed at the time. He's writing to the seven churches. Here's what he says. The revelation of Yeshua the Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. All this book of Revelation is about things that are going to soon take place. And he sent and he communicated by his angel to his bondservant John. The Greek word soon here is tachos. And according to Arton Gingrich's lexicon, tachos is used in the Septuagint. It's used in non-canonical writings to mean speed, quickness, swiftness, haste. John says he's coming soon. 2,000 years ago. He's coming soon. And people say that, that's what the book says. Coming soon. 98. Okay? 2,000 years later, it's still soon. Why is it we can't understand the English language? If soon meant soon, if soon didn't mean soon 2,000 years ago, how does it mean soon today? If 2,000 years ago was 2,000 years, maybe today it's still 2,000 years. Soon has no absolute meaning at all. Look at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, the one he's talking about, the book of Revelation. And heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Engus is the Greek word here. It means near, close, at hand. Alright? It speaks of temporal nearness. He uses the same word in Revelation 22.10. To deny, listen, to deny that God will fulfill His promises is to deny inspiration. You agree with that? Well, I believe that to deny the time statements connected with the promises is also to deny inspiration. He inspired the promises, but not when he would do it? Why is that hard? 
It doesn't fit our traditional view, so we reject it. Contrary to popular opinion, we're not living in the last days. We're not. We're living in the first days of the new covenant. The new covenant age is an eternal covenant, according to Hebrews 13.20. But the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Yeshua, our Lord. It's an eternal covenant. No last days. We're living in the first days, people, of the new age. I mean, we're only 2,000 years in. It's brand new, you know? It's brand new, people. The last days spoken of by the biblical writers were the last days of the Jewish Old Covenant age, which became obsolete, which passed away in A.D. 70 with the judgment and the destruction of Jerusalem. Listen, people. People want to talk about eschatology. Let me tell you a key factor in understanding eschatology. All eschatology is Israel's eschatology. The church has no eschatology. There's no last days for the church. There's no last things for the church. It's all Israel's. We're going to talk about eschatology. It's Israel's. And it came about. Enoch prophesied thousands of years before Christ that he would return in judgment. And he did. He came in judgment on Jerusalem, ending the old covenant, consummating the new. In believers today, we could be saved from so much grief and heartache if they just knew what time it was. Stop being fooled by all these people. I don't care how convincing their books are. I don't know how many mathematical formulas. You know, Khan had so much stuff in there about 777 and all oh, this happened on this date and this happened on this date. And I know so many believers that got sucked into that. We just have to know what time it is. And it's in there. Every time he talks about the coming, there's a time statement. The judge is standing at the door, James says. It is the last hour, John says. Over and over and over, this generation, some of you standing here, he used every possible word and explanation he could to tell them that it was happening very soon. And yet, believers today are saying, Coming soon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. <clears throat> Father, it seems so easy for people to be sucked into things that are so far from the truth. Lord, tradition, we cling to it. We hang on to it. Help us to <clears throat> brush away a lot of things, Lord, and just look at your word for what it is, for what it says. Father, I pray for your church, Lord, that it would wake up they would see all these failed prophecies and begin to question some things, Lord. Give us a heart of Bereans, Lord. May we challenge the status quo. May we not be content to just drift along. May we yearn for the truth of your word that we may walk in fellowship with you. Lord, give us a hunger, a desire to know you and make you known. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. <laughs>